Book the Sixth, Part Two of A Laodicean by Thomas Hardy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Book the Sixth, Part Two. That evening, when the sun was dropping out of sight, they started for the city of Somerset's pilgrimage. Paula seated herself with her face toward the western sky, watching from her window the broad red horizon, across which moved thin poplars lopped to human shapes, like the walking forms in Nebuchadnezzar's furnace. It was dark when the travellers drove into Caen. She still persisted in her wish to casually encounter Somerset in some aisle, lady chapel or crypt, to which he might have betaken himself to copy and learn the secrets of the great artists who had erected those nooks. Mrs. Goodman was for discovering his inn and calling upon him in a straightforward way. But Paula seemed afraid of it, and they went out in the morning on foot. First they searched the church of Saint-Sauveur. He was not there. Next the church of Saint-Jean. Then the church of Saint-Pierre. But he did not reveal himself, nor had any verger seen or heard of such a man. Outside the latter church was a public flower-garden, and she sat down to consider beside a round pool in which water-lilies grew and goldfish swam, near beds of fiery geraniums, dahlias and verbenas, just past their bloom. Her enterprise had not been justified by its results so far, but meditation still urged her to listen to the little voice within and push on. She accordingly rejoined her aunt, and they drove up the hill to the Abbey aux Dames, the day by this time having grown hot and oppressive. The church seemed absolutely empty, the void being emphasised by its grateful coolness. But on going towards the east end they perceived a bald gentleman close to the screen, looking to the right and to the left, as if much perplexed. Paula merely glanced over him, his back being toward her, and turning to her aunt said softly, I wonder how we get into the choir. That's just what I'm wondering, said the old gentleman, abruptly facing round, and Paula discovered that the countenance was not unfamiliar to her eye. Since knowing Somerset, she had added to her gallery of celebrities a photograph of his father, the academician, and it, he it was now who confronted her. For the moment, embarrassment, due to complicated feelings, brought a slight blush to her cheek, but being well aware that he did not know her, she answered, coolly enough, I suppose we must ask someone. And we certainly would if there were anyone to ask, he said, still looking eastward and not much at her. I've been here a long time, but nobody comes. Not that I want to get in on my own account, for though it is thirty years since I last set foot in this place, I remember it as if it were but yesterday. Indeed, I have never been here before, said Paula. Naturally. But I am looking for a young man who is making sketches in some of these buildings, and it is as likely as not that he is in the crypt under this choir, for it is just such out-of-the-way nooks that he prefers. It is very provoking that you should not have told me more distinctly in his letter where to find him. Mrs. Goodman, who had gone to make inquiries, now came back, and informed them that she had learnt that it was necessary to pass through the Hotel Dieu to the choir, to do which they must go outside. Thereupon they walked on together, and Mr. Somerset, quite ignoring his troubles, made remarks upon the beauty of the architecture, and in absence of mind, by reason either of the subject or of his listener, retained his hat in his hand after emerging from the church, while they walked all the way across the Place and into the hospital gardens. 
very civil man, said Mrs. Goodman to Paula privately. Yes, said Paula, who had not told her aunt that she recognised him. One of the sisters now preceded them towards the choir and crypt, Mr. Somerset asking her if a young Englishman was, or had been, sketching there. On receiving a reply in the negative, Paula nearly betrayed herself by turning, as if her business there too ended with the information. However, she went on again and made a pretence of looking round, Mr. Somerset also staying in a spirit of friendly attention to his countrywomen. They did not part from him till they had come out from the crypt and again reached the west front, on their way to which he additionally explained that it was his son he was looking for, who had arranged to meet him here, but had mentioned no inn at which he might be expected. When he had left them, Paula informed her aunt whose company they had been sharing. Her aunt began expostulating with Paula for not telling Mr. Somerset what they had seen of his son's movements. It would have eased his mind, at least, she said. I was not bound to ease his mind at the expense of showing what I would rather conceal. I am continually hampered in such generosity as that by the circumstance of being a woman. Well, it is getting too late to search further tonight. It was indeed almost evening twilight of the streets, though the graceful freestone spires, to a depth of about twenty feet from their summits, were still dyed with the orange tints of a vanishing sun. The two relatives dined privately as usual, after which Paula looked out of the window of her room and reflected upon the events of the day. A tower, rising into the sky quite near at hand, showed her that some church or other stood within a few steps of the hotel archway, and saying nothing to Mrs. Goodman, she quietly cloaked herself and went out towards it, apparently with the view of disposing of a portion of a dull, dispiriting evening. The church was open, and on entering she found that it was only lighted by seven candles burning before the altar of a chapel on the south side, the mass of the building being in deep shade. Motionless outlines, which resolved themselves into the forms of kneeling women, were darkly visible among the chairs, and in the triforium above the arcades there was one hitherto unnoticed radiance, dim as that of a glow-worm in the grass. It was seemingly the effect of a solitary tallow candle behind the masonry. A priest came in, unlocked the door of a confessional with a click which sounded in the silence, and entered it. A woman followed, disappeared within the curtain of the same, emerging again in about five minutes, followed by the priest, who locked up his door with another loud click, like a tradesman full of business, and came down the aisle to go out. In the lobby he spoke to another woman, who replied, Ah oui, monsieur l'abbé. Two women having spoken to him, there could be no harm in a third doing likewise. Monsieur l'abbé, said Paula in French, could you indicate to me the stairs of the triforium? And she signified her reason for wishing to know by pointing to the glimmering light above. Ah, he is a friend of yours, the Englishman, pleasantly said the priest, recognising her nationality, and, taking her to a little door, he conducted her up a stone staircase, at the top of which he showed her the long, blind story over the aisle arches which led round to where the light was. Cautioning her not to stumble over the uneven floor, he left her and descended. His words had signified that Somerset was here. It was a gloomy place enough that she found herself in, but the seven candles below on the opposite altar, and a faint skylight from the clerestory, lent enough rays to guide her. 
Paula walked on to the bend of the apse. Here were a few chairs, and the origin of the light. There was a candle stuck at the end of a sharpened stick, the latter entering a joint in the stones. A young man was sketching by the glimmer. But there was no need for the blush which had prepared itself beforehand. The young man was Mr. Cockton, Somerset's youngest draftsman. Paula could have cried aloud with disappointment. Cockton recognised Miss Power, and appearing much surprised, rose from his seat with a bow and said hastily, Mr. Somerset left today. I did not ask for him, said Paula. No, Miss Power, but I thought, yes, yes, you know, of course, that he has been my architect. Well, it happens that I should like to see him, if he can call on me. Which way did he go? He's gone to Etretat. What for? There are no abbeys to sketch at Etretat. Cockton looked at the point of his pencil, and with a hesitating motion of his lip answered, Mr. Somerset said he was tired. Of what? He said he was sick and tired of holy places, and go to some wicked spot or other to get that consolation which holiness could not give. But he only said it casually to Knowles, and perhaps he did not mean it. Knowles is here too? Yes, Miss Power, and Bowles. Mr. Somerset has been kind enough to give us a chance of enlarging our knowledge of French early pointed, and pays half the expenses. Paula said a few other things to the young man, walked slowly round the triforium as if she had come to examine it, and returned down the staircase. On getting back to the hotel, she told her aunt, who had just been having a nap, the next day they would go to Etretat for a change. Why? There are no old churches at Etretat. No, but I am sick and tired of holy places, and wanted to go to some wicked spot or other to find that consolation which holiness cannot give. For shame, Paula! Now I know what it is. You've heard that he's gone there. You needn't try to blind me. I don't care where he's gone, cried Paula petulantly. In a moment, however, she smiled at herself and added, You must take that for what it is worth. I have made up my mind to let him know from my own lips how the misunderstanding arose. That done, I shall leave him, and probably never see him again. My conscience will be clear. The next day they took the steamboat down the Orne, intending to reach Etretat by way of Havre. Just as they were moving off, an elderly gentleman under a large white sunshade, and carrying his hat in his hand, was seen leisurely walking down the wharf at some distance, but obviously making for the boat. "'A gentleman,' said the mate. "'Who is he?' said the captain. "'An English,' said Clementine. Nobody knew more. But as leisure was the order of the day, the engines were stopped on the chance of his being a passenger, and all eyes were bent upon him in conjecture. He disappeared and reappeared from behind a pile of merchandise, and approached the boat at an easy pace, whereupon the gangway was replaced, and he came on board, removing his hat to Paula, quietly thanking the captain for stopping, and saying to Mrs. Goodman, "'I am nicely in time.' It was Mr. Somerset the Elder, who by degrees informed our travellers, as sitting on their capstools they advanced between the green banks bordered by elms, that he was going to Etretat, that the young man he had spoken of yesterday had gone to that romantic watering-place instead of studying art at Caen, and that he was going to join him there. Paula preserved an entire silence as to her own intentions, partly from natural reticence, and partly, as it appeared, from the difficulty of explaining a complication which was not very clear to herself. 
At Havre they parted from Mr. Somerset, and did not see him again till they were driving over the hills towards Etretat in a carriage and four, when the white umbrella became visible far ahead among the outside passengers of the coach to the same place. In a short time they had passed and cut in before this vehicle, but soon became aware that their carriage, like the coach, was one of a straggling procession of conveyances, some mile and a half in length, all bound for the village between the cliffs. In descending the long hills, shaded by lime-trees which sheltered their place of destination, this procession closed up, and they perceived that all the visitors and native population had turned out to welcome them, the daily arrival of new sojourners at this hour being the chief excitement of Etretat. The coach, which had preceded them all the way, at more or less remoteness, was now quite close, and in passing along the village street, they saw Mr. Somerset wave his hand to somebody in the crowd below. A felt hat was waved in the air in response. The coach swept into the inn-yard, followed by the idlers, and all disappeared. Paula's face was crimson as their own carriage swept round in the opposite direction to the rival inn. Once in her room, she breathed like a person who had finished a long chase. They did not go down before dinner, but when it was almost dark, Paula begged her aunt to wrap herself up and come with her to the shore hard by. The beach was deserted, everybody being at the casino. The gate stood invitingly open, and they went in. Here the brilliantly lit terrace was crowded with promenaders, and outside the yellow palings, surmounted by its row of lamps, rose the voice of the invisible sea. Groups of people were sitting under the veranda, the women mostly in wraps, for the air was growing chilly. Through the windows at their back, an animated scene disclosed itself in the shape of a room full of waltzers, the strains of the band striving in the ear for mastery over the sounds of the sea. The dancers came round a couple at a time, and were individually visible to those people without who chose to look that way, which was what Paula did. "'Come away, come away,' she suddenly said. "'It's not right for us to be here.' Her exclamation had its origin in what she had at that moment seen within. The spectacle of Mr. George Somerset whirling round the room with a young lady of uncertain nationality but pleasing figure. Paula was not accustomed to show the white feather too clearly, but she soon had passed out through those yellow gates and retreated, till the mixed music of sea and a band had resolved into that of the sea alone. Well, said her aunt, half in soliloquy, do you know who I saw dancing there, Paula? Ah, Mr. Somerset, if I don't make a great mistake. It was likely enough that you did, sedately replied her niece. He left Caen with the intention of seeking distractions of a lighter kind than those furnished by art, and he has merely succeeded in finding them. But he has made my duty rather a difficult one. He said it was my duty, for I very greatly wronged him. Perhaps, however, I have done enough for honour's sake. I would have humiliated myself by an apology if I had found him in any other situation. But, of course, one can't be expected to take much trouble when he's seen going on like that. The coolness with which she began her remarks had developed into something like warmth as she concluded. He's only dancing with a lady he probably knows very well. He doesn't know her. The idea of his dancing with a woman of that description. We'll go away tomorrow. This place has been greatly overpraised. The place is well enough as far as I can see. 
He is carrying out his programme to the letter. He plunges into excitement in the most reckless manner, and I tremble for the consequences. I can do no more. I have humiliated myself into following him, believing that in giving too ready credence to appearances I have been narrow and inhuman, and have caused him much misery. But he does not mind, and he has no misery. He seems just as well as ever. How much this finding him has cost me! After all, I did not deceive him. He must have acquired a natural aversion for me. I have allowed myself to be interested in a man of very common qualities, and am now bitterly alive to the shame of having sought him out. I heartily detest him. I will go back. Aunt, you are right. I had no business to come. His light conduct has rendered him uninteresting to me. End of Book the Sixth, Part Two